Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? I love it. Happy Reformation Sunday, uh, also known as Halloween, I believe. Um, We had some people dress up in the first service, and none of you guys did. I am disappointed. Uh, Next year, put it in your memory banks. Uh, We're going to jump straight into chapter 9, and we'll read the text together. We're in a series on Acts for those of you that are visiting. Uh, My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. That may also be important to know. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he may take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord answered Ananias, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's pray together. God, as we look at this text, this text is a moment where a man becomes alive in a different way. Would you speak to us as a community of people here? We are on all sorts of places on a journey, some with very real questions, some who feel like we've been doing this thing for a while but maybe still have some very real questions. Would you take this text that you breathed on? Would you breathe into us? And would we become alive, please, in new and different ways? Amen. Okay, so Book of Acts, this book that largely, you might say, is is about transformation. This is a book where people's lives are changed in dramatic and spectacular ways. Those people then go on to partner with God in the world around them and see other people's lives transformed in dramatic and spectacular ways. This is a book of transformation, and we're going to jump into this first piece of the text. We're going to take these first couple of verses in chapter 9, verse 4. I'm going to make you work today if you have a text in front of you. Because we can't do all of Acts verse by verse, we will jump around just a little bit. If you feel a little bit lost in that respect, 
you'll be okay, you'll find us again eventually. As he saw near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. We are in the realms of road to Damascus experiences. This language is now common enough in our everyday society that you've probably heard it before, even if it hasn't been in this context. It's language we use when we have an experience that is transformative in some particular way. Now, now those things can be normal things, everyday things. If you are here and you got married, that was probably a road to Damascus experience. There's the moment where you were boyfriend and girlfriend and you got married and you're like, wow, now they're here all the time. Now we have to share a space. Now we have to have like common like sinks and stuff like that. We have to share the same faucet. All those different things, all those different sort of learning experiences about being married. If you have children, you have an experience where you realize just how much they are going to change your life and you're going to have to need to be someone different to deal with it. I remember the first time I took Elena out of a car in a car seat. I just placed the seat behind me and the car next to us started to reverse. And she was at this point a day old. And I I have this moment where I'm like, I am ill-equipped to be a good father. I am going to have to learn some stuff really quickly. Road to Damascus, awakening experience. Sometimes it's about people's character. We learn something about someone and it changes our relationship with them. The other day, I was invited to a card game. Uh, Now, if that's a problem for you, then this is a confession. Um, And you can grant me your forgiveness. But uh, in the course of this card game, the guy I was playing with, he he said, you know what, I'm not looking at my cards. I'm just going to play as though I haven't seen them. And I said, okay, that's a really silly decision. Like, if you want to do that, that's fine. And, and so we went on with the game. And, and then finally, he flipped over his two cards that gave him an unbeatable hand. And he looked at me with a smirk and he said, oh, I had seen them. I was just lying to you. And I, was, I felt betrayed to the depths of my soul. I was so angry. And uh, just, you know, I was like, what do I do with this guy? And he, he then looked at me and he said, oh, I can't believe it. I lied to a pastor. And I said, yes, you did. And that has very serious consequences, my friend. The reason it's different to lying to almost any other human being is because at some point now, you will be in a sermon story as an illustration. And this was like two days ago this happened. So you can see I, I didn't wait, I didn't hold off very long. But, but I looked at this man and I was like, I, I will never believe you again. It doesn't matter what you tell me. You have changed something about the nature of our relationship. And, and yeah, I just... You can tell how deeply it rankles. There are these experiences we have in life that transform something about the way that we do life, whether it's the way we behave, whether it's a relationship. And yet in its original context, this road to Damascus experience is a spiritual revelation as he saw near Damascus on his journey. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The character that we're going to deal with today is called Saul. In other parts of Acts, he's called Paul. When he writes letters in the New Testament, he's called Paul. The truth is, just to set you up for my own failure, I will probably interchange Saul and Paul multiple times through this sermon, and there's nothing I can do about it. I apologize in advance. I'll try and use Saul because that's how he's referenced, but I just know him as Paul, so it just is hard to change. Saul has this experience, and maybe the tension point that we would name to start with is maybe we read this and say, I want that. Why don't I get that certainty? What is it to see a blinding light, to fall to the ground, 
and then to be blind and then be healed of blindness. For those of us that wrestle with doubt, that struggle with, is this thing real? I want that. Why don't I get that? We'll leave that tension there for a while and we'll come back to it because I think it's a very real question as we wrestle with this text. As he saw near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Where's my light? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So a little bit of backstory. It's important to know a little bit about who Saul is. It definitely gives us some insights into what's happening here. Who is this man? So we've now, for those of you following week by week, we've jumped forward. We looked at Acts chapter 6 last week. We looked at a little bit of chapter 8, one particular story. We're now on chapter 9. For those of you that can count, you realize that we've missed chapter 7. So just for a second, we're going to go back and look at something that happens in chapter 7. At one point, we read in the story, I think last week, we looked at how the church realized it had an administration problem. My road to Damascus experience personally was realizing administration was important and you actually needed people who could organize things. It seems like the early church had the same revelation. They picked seven men who could help with those detailed kinds of things that would, could, could, who could come along the earliest followers of Jesus and give structure to stuff. Last week, we looked at how Philip, one of those seven, had gone on to do this remarkable thing. He'd led an Ethiopian eunuch into relationship with Jesus. Another character called Stephen, we'll look at for just a brief second. Stephen has this experience where he gives a dramatic address. He stands up in front of the religious leaders of the day, and he simply calls them out. He gives this incredibly stirring sort of review of everything that's happened in Jewish life and then finally says, we were waiting for this Messiah figure, we were waiting for this character and when he got here, just like you did with the other prophets, you killed him. Obviously, as you would expect, this doesn't go down particularly well and there's the moment where the court, the legal court of the day, the Sanhedrin will grab Stephen and this is this moment where we get our first introduction to who Saul is and our first insight into his character. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. This is Acts chapter 7 verse 54. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the tops of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is involved in the murder, in the death of this young man who was coming to the church and brought organization to it, part of this seven group of leaders that have been appointed by the church. In today's legal system, he may not be charged with first degree murder, but he's definitely involved in some way. This is our first introduction to who Paul is alongside those religious leaders who have said, we're going to oppose this new thing. This new movement of faith, this recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, we're going to do everything we can to stop it happening. And the end of Stephen's story is just so compelling. We have to read it. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord 
Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's such a beautiful symmetry in Stephen's story with Jesus' story. The same way that Jesus can in his moment of death say, Lord, forgive them. Stephen will do the same thing. This is the type of people that this new movement, this Christian faith is producing. Saul is against it along with the religious leaders. And so when we start chapter 9, verse 1 and 3, This is the person that we're talking about, this person who has decided, I'm against what is happening here. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was the name that Christianity was known as at this point, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Think about this for a second. Is he at this point got the same mentality as the religious leaders that we've encountered in this series so far? If you've got so far, if you've got a long memory, think back to when we had this incredible healing story. A man who was born lame is healed, and there's an incredible crowd that gathers, thousands join the church. Is Paul similar to those religious leaders? I don't know if he is really at his heart similar to them to them at all. Think about what Saul is about to do. He's about to go from Jerusalem to Damascus. This is a journey that would just take four or five days at least, an arduous journey. Paul is so committed to what he's doing that he's going to make this journey of four or five hours. Compare him for a second to those religious leaders that we looked at in chapter three and chapter four. This is their response to this incredible miracle. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. This group of religious leaders, they're opposing Christianity but they're opposing it, believing that miraculous things have happened. They know that they're opposing the work of God. They have become so consumed by power, so consumed by self, they are no longer interested in knowing the truth. They are simply concerned with what benefits them the most. Is that who Paul is? Is that who Saul is? I don't think that is who he is at all. I would suggest this is the difference between the two of them. I think they, the religious leaders, are working primarily for themselves, their own personal interests. At different points, they'll say things like, man, if, if we let this thing grow, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take over like all the temple and everything. We're going to lose our position. This is going to be bad for us financially. It's going to be bad for us in terms of our positions of power. I don't think that's who Saul is. I think Saul genuinely believes he is working for God. I believe he is a true believer. He is what the Old Testament would have called a zealot or someone living out of zeal. There were plenty of stories in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, where people gave prophetic addresses that they were called false prophets or something like that, and they were killed, and people celebrated the action. There were plenty of moments in the history of Judaism where people rose up claiming to be the Messiah and they were stoned to death and people celebrated the action. This society is in so many ways very different from our society. I believe Paul believes he is absolutely in line with what God wants. He believes that Jesus was a liar. He believes that the people that were following him are liars. And he believes it's his duty to stop this thing 
as quickly as possible. While, while those religious leaders are centered around this question, what can I do for me? What benefits me? That isn't Saul's question at all. Saul is completely devoted for what can I do for God. He is a zealot. He is a true believer. He is going to chase this thing down. And so committed is he that he'll go from Jerusalem to Damascus. He'll make a four or five day journey just to make sure if there's any of these followers anywhere, we're going to shut this thing down. We're going to bring an end to it. And that, interestingly, makes him more dangerous than the other guys. That makes him more dangerous to the church than the other guys. C.S. Lewis uh, has this wonderful quote about tyranny. What he says is this, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Those religious leaders from chapter 3, chapter 4, at some point they may say something like, wow, we really need to get on board with what God is doing. Genuine miracles are happening. Life change is happening here. We need to get involved. We've been going about this the wrong way. They may admit to the fact that their financial interests are driving them. They may admit to the fact that power is driving them. They may change their minds. They may have mercy. But Paul will show no mercy because Paul believes he is on the side of God in this matter. And it is going to take something spectacular to stop him. One of the sad parts of the history of the church has been our involvement in things that, that really we thought were the will of God. And it would seem historically we were massively wrong on. There was one point where the Crusades were celebrated widely in the church and talked about as a good and healthy thing. Regularly, the armies of Jerusalem, when they went out to war, would yell, God wills it. We are on the side of God as they went out to slaughter innocent women and children. The church has a history, just like Paul, of getting things wrong, getting things mixed up and believing deeply we are, we are on the side of God. We are doing his will. And that's who Paul is. This is a moment where the villain of the story will become a hero in the story. This is a moment where a villain in the story will become a hero in the story. For those of you that love movies, you know, occasionally you come across those characters where you're kind of watching the movie and you're like, this is, this is a bad guy, but I kind of like him. I kind of feel like I, I'm on his side and I, and I want him to be on my side. And then there's the wonderful moment where he finally makes the switch from the dark side to the light side. Saul is basically a biblical Darth Vader. He's this guy making that big switch. And if that spoiled the end of Star Wars for you, I have no apologies because it came out 40 years ago. So if you haven't seen it at this point, um, <laughs> I don't want to tell you. This is Paul's great switch moment. The ultimate villain in the story is going to switch and become part of the hero narrative. The guy who's on the side of dark will switch to the side of light. So let's go back and look at those first verses we looked at. As he saw near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The question I have for us is this. Why does Saul get this special treatment? As I touched on earlier, our tension point is, I want that certainty. And I know lots of other people that do too. Maybe you are one of those people. Maybe you have friends, family members that are like, I could jump in on this Jesus thing if I could know for certain. But they can't. And yet Paul seems to get that. Why does Paul get that? One of the first jobs I ever worked, I worked with a guy called Danny who became a good friend. And because I had a car and he didn't, I would regularly drop him home after work. And we would sit sometimes for an hour, two hours talking about faith. And occasionally I would ask him and push him and just say, what is it that stops you exploring faith? Is it simply that you, know, you don't want to give up some of the things that you feel like you might have to give up if you jump into this Jesus journey? Or what's the thing that holds you up? And he looked at me and he said, it's just that I can't believe. I just can't get there. And he said, if God is there, I would love him, love him to step in and just show me. If he could show me, I'd be fine. Why does Paul get this kind of special treatment? Why does Paul get certainty? The simple answer that the text will give us is this. God needs him for a special task. And the Bible is okay in acknowledging that God needs him for a special task. God is going to use this character to do something very specific. And that's a weird shift for this book, Acts, that has emphasized the community is more important than the individual. In this case, when we read it on first reading, there's a bit of a switch. It's like, no, this guy is so essential. I'm going I'm to break the normal patterns because this story is unusual even for Acts. There are not many stories in which someone has this kind of individual supernatural encounter that pulls them into the story in a particular way. There's these fun stories been going on all around the world. I don't know if you've missed these or caught hold of some of them, but not long ago, a guy was swimming off the coast of Israel and he pulled this out of the ocean. It's a crusader sword from about a thousand years ago. And in itself, this was just a fun little anecdote. A guy found an old sword, but almost at exactly the same time, just a few weeks apart, another guy was swimming off the coast of Norway and pulled out a Viking sword from the ocean. And then at a similar time, a young girl was swimming in a lake in Cornwall in England, the lake that apparently King Arthur threw the legendary Escalibur, and she pulled a sword out of this deep lake. And you get this feeling that some force in the universe is building some kind of team to accomplish some target or something like that. There's almost like a, an Avengers-type feel to it. What are these people going to do with their newfound power and newfound swords? The swords may not be much use now. They look a little rusty. But there is this, like, this feel to it. Like, what's going going on here. Now, of course, there is no sort of power pulling people together with old swords to do anything in particular that I'm aware of. I could be wrong. But in this case, that's exactly what is happening. God is pulling someone into his story for a specific purpose. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. I love just how normal this is to Ananias. I think I would be freaking out at this point. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tar from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 
I love the dialogue. There's this moment where Ananias is like, yeah, this isn't the guy you want. I, I've heard about this guy. Are you aware, Jesus, that there's some issues with him? I, I think you should reconsider. Uh, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I also love the fact that that's the moment Ananias is in on this plan. It's like, oh yeah, you're going to make this jerk suffer? I can get on board. Let's pull him into the story. You do whatever you want. The whole narrative here with Saul is based around God has chosen him for a specific task. And remember back to when we started with Acts, one of the things I said to you guys is this. There is this surprise in Acts. This constant surprise for the early church will be this. Gentiles, non-Jewish people are included in this story. They're going to get pulled in and nobody expected that. Maybe they should have if they'd read some of the texts in the Old Testament, but nobody expected that. And Paul, it seems, will be hugely important in making that happen. What we'll see as Acts unfolds is we'll see that the original 11 followers of Jesus will begin to go to the Jewish people primarily and Paul and some of his followers will begin to go to the Gentile communities. It seems the wrong way around on the surface because Paul is very, very Jewish. He studied under famous Jewish leaders. It seems he would go to the Jewish people and Peter and some of those disciples very rough and ready on the fringes of Judaism, you'd think they would go to the Gentiles and yet maybe God in his plan says, you're going to need to rely on me for this, guys. For whatever reason, he has this distinct plan for Paul and that is as much reason as we're given for his special treatment as it were, for his road to Damascus appearance. He gets this moment because God is going to have a plan for him. But it doesn't deal with the question, why can't we all have that? Why can't we all have that kind of experience? Why can't my friend Danny have that certainty that he says will lead him into faith? Why can't you in your lowest moments have this certainty that there is a God present in the universe? Why can't your friends, your family members that ask you those questions, why don't we get certainty. A few years ago, I happened to see a cloud formation. I don't know if it translates to this big screen, but I had this cloud formation outside my window and I took a picture because it kind of looked like a huge torso and head of a man standing there in the clouds. And it sent me down this trail of imagining what would we do if God did appear in this spectacular way? Would it change everything for us? The writer Frederick Beekness sketches out in his sort of imagination this idea of what it would look like for God to write, I exist, God, in the sky, or I am really here. What would happen? What would be the outworking? And he said, in the moment, no doubt, it would be spectacular. People would fall to their knees. Churches would become stadiums full of people. And pastors would have the unusual experience of actually having people believe them when they talk, of actually having people take them seriously outside of you know, the small group of people sitting here. Of course, that he imagines this transformation being spectacular. Lives might change completely. People might live in different ways. There would be cries of repentance of change. But then he says, what would happen after a month or two months or a year? What would happen then? He said someone, probably a child, would ask the very perceptive question. So what? What does that mean? Why does it matter? 
I would suggest that the question you and I ask in those moments, the question that my friend Danny was asking, the question that people we know are asking isn't really, is there a God somewhere in the universe? That piece of information is not particularly unique or original, doesn't really matter all that much. The question we would want an answer to is, does that God in the universe care about me? Is he involved and present with me? Does he have any interest in me as an individual person? That at its core is more of the question. And no road to Damascus experience can give you that knowledge. I would suggest Christianity is not a belief that God exists. It is the belief that God has acted in the world through Jesus and that that action was done for us and it transforms us. Think about this experience Paul has for a second. Does this experience convince him God exists? No. He was already 100% God convinced that God existed. That was a certainty for someone like Paul. He had believed this all of his life. He had been ingrained to believe that the God of Israel was the God of the universe as well. He has no particular doubts about just the existence of God What this transformation experience does is it pulls Paul into a story that assures him he is loved and he can be a different person. That's what happens to him. Saul is transformed by knowledge that he is loved by God. Think about how he'll unpack his own stories in letters that he'll write to churches. This is a letter to a church in a place called Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is transformed when he understands that life with God is a relationship not just a piece of information. He's transformed by knowledge that he is loved by God and by a continuing partnership with him. As he unpacks what life has looked like for him since this moment later in his life, he says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. As we read his road to Damascus experience, we are seeing this moment where he believes God took hold of him. And now in return, he spends the rest of his life trying to take hold of everything for which God took hold of him. We are seeing Paul transformed, not by this new knowledge that God exists, by this awakening to God's presence in the world. The idea that God is present with him, loves him particularly, owns him and that he has acted in the world and that changes everything. So here's the good news. You may not have had a road to Damascus experience and you may never have one. You may never have that bright shining light that tells you God exists. But if you have walked into relationship with Jesus, if you are becoming aware of the fact that he loves you, if you are seeing what it is to be transformed by him, the details are different. But your transformation story is the same. 
The details are different, but your transformation story is the same. Over the course of his life, Paul never once celebrates the fact that God appeared to him in this supernatural way. Never once celebrates the moment of a flash of light. Never celebrates the fact that he was blind for a while and then begins to be able to see again. What he does celebrate is this. He celebrates the fact that the God of the universe loves him, knows him, and owns him. And that the God of the universe will partner with him. You won't experience the road to Damascus lights, but you can experience the transformation that follows. And that, that is what the New Testament celebrates. Let's continue. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who, were, who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. There is this moment where Paul, who has this earthly mission that he feels is so important to stop what he sees happening, it, that moment, there is this moment in which a heavenly calling triumphs over early mission. Paul is called and commissioned to do something. That is what this story is about. It's about a man who believes fundamentally he is doing stuff for God, and there is this moment where he is now invited to do things with God. And so what do we learn from that? I don't know which person or people in the story you identify with or at which point of their journey. Maybe you identify with the Jewish leaders from chapter three, chapter four. Maybe you, you would say, this fundamentally describes my life. It is centered around what I can do for me. And maybe you've made a journey from that. Maybe you would say that your life is centered around what I can do for God. And yet both of them miss this move that Paul makes. Paul is centered around doing things for God. And yet he's invited to do things with God. Paul lives his life doing things for God and yet is wildly, wildly incorrect about what God is actually calling him to do. His moment of transformation is the moment where he realized he's missed this new story. His moment of transformation happens when he jumps in on this new story and says, I'm going to live into that story. To follow Jesus is to be able to pray a prayer that looks like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That moment of praying into your kingdom come is, as we've talked about, this moment of surrendering our own kingdoms and making decisions that live in the consequences of that. How can I help you understand this just a little bit? I sometimes think our mentality is a little bit like the state of Texas. So if you don't know flags, this is fun with flags with Alex or something like that. This is the flag of Texas. And there's this rumor about this particular flag because if you know people from Texas, I'm sure we've got some here, they're very passionate about being from Texas. It's very important to them. And the rumor behind this flag is this. This is the only flag of the 50 state flags that can fly at the same level as the flag of the United States. Because Texas was a nation before it joined the Union. So it has that privilege. You can fly it higher than you can fly other state flags. At least that's the belief. But in actual fact, it's a completely, it's a, it's a rumor. It's, it's completely untrue. In actual fact, any flag of any state can fly at the same height as the flag of the United States. But 
The flag of the United States always has to take precedence, whether it's Texas or another state. When you look at flags in this country, at least, when you look at which flag is highest and to the left, it will always be the US flag because it is the flag of preeminence. And no other flag can sit at the same level as it. I think one of our great struggles in following Jesus is we have other flags that we long to fly in place of that flag. We long to put other flags in precedence over that. It could be our politics. It could be our sexuality. It could be our ethnic background. It could be our national heritage. It could be any of those things. And yet we find ways for those flags to find precedence in our life. And yet the prayer that Jesus' followers were taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, is to surrender surrender those flags to the one flag that takes precedence, that flag of following Jesus. That's the only flag that can sit in that place for a true follower of Jesus. I would suggest that this prayer that we are taught to pray, that Paul will soon learn as a new follower of Jesus, is this prayer to say, God, how can I participate in your kingdom, not for your kingdom, but with you in your kingdom. That's the move that Paul can make. And the invitation that we see here is this invitation to say, not what can I do for God, but what can I do with God? A question for you and for I, I think, this week is, how is God calling you or inviting you to partner with him? We see with Paul what happens to a man who is so convinced he's doing things for God and yet is wildly wrong in terms of what God is doing in the world. I wonder whether you and I fall into the same trap at different points. What is it that is happening in your life that God is inviting you to partner with? Is it something, a decision that you're making around a company or a business? Is it a job decision that you're about to make? Are you asking, are you praying about a family issue? Is it a friendship, relational issue? It could be anywhere on that spectrum. And yet when we get into the mindset of, I'm going to do things for God, I'm just going to act, I think we end up in the wrong direction more often than not. I sit here regularly when you guys aren't here because I get to sit and not talk for a while and I'll sit in this space and I'll just spend some time just asking Jesus questions and just trying to give him space to talk to me. And one time as I sat here, one of the questions or one of the, the things that I heard was this, are you doing this or are we doing this? Are you doing this or are we doing this? There is one, it's one thing to say, I'm gonna actively try and do something good for God and for his kingdom. It seems it's a completely different thing to say, God, how might I do something with you this week, this month, this year? As you guys live your lives this week, as I live my life this week, the challenge is to say, God, how are you calling me to partner with you? Not what can I do for you? But how might your kingdom come if we partner together? Paul is a man who all his life has done things for God. His big transformation, his big shift is to move into relationship with God and to live life with him in partnership. Transformation happens when we become aware of God's distinct love for us and his desire to partner with us. I'm going to invite the worship team up on stage. Let's pray. God, for my friends in their journey, for myself in my journey, wherever we are, whether we're longing for that certainty that a road to Damascus experience might give us, whether we're certain that you're there but just uncertain that you really care for us, 
whatever I need, would you speak? Would you come alongside those that need your love in a particular way in this moment? Would you whisper that you love them? I've sat there in those moments where I've just felt like, I just feel a bit of a mess and feel like God can't be very impressed with what he has on his hands. And so for those that sit here in those moments, I pray for a reassurance of your love, a reminder that you are passionate about them, that you have acted in this world and have done it for them. For those of us that are doing things for you, doing work at you, would you lead us into new partnership? Would you really help us to remember that this is a journey we are on with you? To walk step by step with you. To listen to your voice, even when that's hard, even when it takes a lot of learning and practice. Thank you that you're present with us. And while we would at times long for a big shining light, what we need most is to know that you are present in this world that you know our struggles. Thank you for Jesus who demonstrates that love for us, who lived our lives. Would you lead us deeper into relationship with you? Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.